Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sansare Mayujid, the host of the channel for today. And today we'll be talking to Professor Matthew King about his new book, Ocean of Milk, Ocean of Blood, a Mongolian Monk in the Ruins of the Qing Empire. Professor Matthew King is an associate professor in transnational Buddhist studies, transnational Buddhism in the Department of Religious Studies at UC Riverside. His research primarily focuses on Buddhist thought and monastic life in Inner Asia during the collapse of the Qing and Tsarist empires and the birth of nationalism and state socialism. He has extensively published in various peer-reviewed edited volumes and journals, and we are about to hear more about his new book, which was published by Columbia University Press today. So welcome, Professor Matthew King, to the show. And I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I um, I think like many folks who come to Buddhist studies, uh, I grew up in a way uh, exploring you know, Tibetan Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan uh, areas and regions and travel and so on. And um, from the time that I was about fifteen or sixteen. Uh, became very involved with um, Tibetan Buddhist communities um, in Ontario, Canada, where I'm from, where I grew up. And um, pretty early on, uh, when I was maybe about 16 or 17, um, I became connected with uh, some communities uh, um, that uh, eventually um, began doing relief work in Mongolia amongst Tibetan refugee communities in South India um, and also in um, Kham or areas in um, Eastern Tibet in the People's Republic of China today. Um, and so through those connections, sort of relief work and just an interest in, in Buddhism and connections to Tibetan Buddhist communities, um, I had the chance to begin traveling to, you know, Buddhist sites in India and then eventually to Tibet, to Mongolia uh, and elsewhere and eventually found my way after uh, my undergrad uh, degree, um, accompanying a, a lama through a teaching tour in Mongolia, through the South Gobi and to Ulaanbaatar and meeting a generation of very old Mongolian lamas like Guru Deva Rinpoche, um, uh, uh, that sort of gave me a sense of the Buddhist revival happening in Mongolia, certainly in this kind of transnational context of Tibetan lamas coming and giving transmissions and all this sort of rebuilding and, and so on. And um, at that point, I'd been working and training as an anthropologist and ended up doing a master's thesis on hmm. kind of like what I was understanding as Buddhist Bible camps in the Gobi for an emerging and very privileged group of kind of an emerging and very privileged demographic in post-socialist Mongolia, which was the urban middle class uh, and specifically the the youth, the, the children of the emerging urban middle class. 
And these 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 kids were sort of sought out by various lamas and taken down to the Gobi, for example, and and taught what it meant to be Mongol, what it meant to be Buddhist, and um, and definitely sort of mirroring Christian missionary tactics that have been going on since the early nineties. Um, and then, so through that, I, I what I discovered was that um, the idea of the Mongolian Buddhist history, particularly in the early twentieth century, was very important for contemporary religious life in Inner Asia um, and was very interesting to me, but it hadn't really been studied. And um, that really led me to begin doctoral work, training in historical anthropology and wondering about kind of religious social imagination in the modern remaking of Inner Asia, you know, revolution, uh, nationalism, all this stuff. And that kind of is a straight line to this book many years later, I guess. Mm. Yes, definitely. You are one of the few people in the world who work in the area of Inner Asia and Mongolia. And what were some of the challenges that you encountered when kind of initially choosing this project? Well, there's two sets of challenges that come to mind, and those are challenges that I still face today in some ways. <laughs> I mean, one is, look, you're, you're working on... Um, a time of profound state violence that's within the living memory of communities today. And, um, you know, that's not something to be taken lightly. Um, And the way that communities today choose to remember state suppression, state violence that wasn't coming from the outside necessarily. It was also, you know, Mongols, killing Mongols and, and uh, an entire apparatus of uh, kind of suppression and violence that um, implicates families that are alive today who are victims as well as perpetrators. Mm. So, and the politics of mem- remembering violence is, of course, something to be respected. And so, you know, the great difficulty with this project and to be honest, my apprehension about how it will be received in Mongolia is that it tells a very different story than mm. a sort of hyper-nationalist one that is mm, fondly remembered or invented mm. today. Um, and so there's those problems um, that I acknowledge in the book and try to, to think through. Um, and then the other problem is, you know, getting at the traces of Buddhist life outside of state archives um, is a very difficult task. You know, most research that's been done on early 20th century Buddhist uh, life in Mongolia, at least, has been sort of state-centric, right? Focused on state Mm -hmm. archives, confessions, trial proceedings, uh, party congress you know, circulars and so on, right? Uh, Getting at what people thought and understood outside of the party um, is not an easy task, especially since in Mongolia, um, the destruction of monasteries, of monastic records, of texts, or at the very least, their profound displacement is massive. You know, so the idea of what an archive of the social and religious imagination of Buddhist monastics facing the collapse of the Qing, the nationalist and then socialist revolution is itself, uh, you know, a, a real hurdle, <laughs> which is why, you know, 
Zawadamdin, this very unique figure who is the protagonist of my book, is so exceptional because he write he wrote nine thousand folios of texts, mostly during this period from say, you know, nineteen ten, a few texts a little earlier till nineteen thirty seven, that fateful year of the purges and of his own death. Um, and so there's nothing like it in the sense in scale or scope from any other mm-hmm. Mongolian monastic, at least that we're aware of now. And not only that, he engaged these new currents so deeply and personally um, that you know um, we get a sense of, of uh, something like a social history, social history of knowledge as well. So those are the two hurdles, you know, just getting at sources, finding voices, um, as well as the politics of, you know, stumbling into memories of state <laughs> violence. Yeah, definitely. And that brings us perfectly to your book, um, which is now Adamdin. Mm-hmm. So I love the book, and I've been following okay. your work for a very long time. And just mm-hmm. the way that the book is organized in these two parts is quite intriguing. Um, and I guess it begins really with Zawadamdin, this yes. figure from the end of the Qing dynasty in Mongolia, who really marked maybe one of the last polymath of Mongolia in mm-hmm. Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, why don't you go ahead and take us through the book and the chapters? Uh, sure, yeah. Well, um, I should say, you know, something I tried to do in this book and that I try to do uh, like many other scholars of, mm-hmm. of Buddhism, of course, is to make our work legible um, to a broader audience than just area specialists, and not only legible, but to actually make interventions into broader, you know, theoretical conversations. And for me, Zawa Damden and his work and the social world that his work helps illuminate really challenges a lot of the standard narratives in the way that modern Asian history is told generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the way that I start the book is with a vignette um, from a text that I found describing uh, a figure who it ends up being Zawa Damden, uh, climbing up on a throne in uh, a monastic college and delivering this long exegesis on prophecies given by one of the uh, Qing emperors who is considered to be the emanation of Manjushri. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, these prophecies have to do with, you know, a long history of essentially organizing global history around a unified secular and religious rule, the famous two systems, unified two systems, Chisi Sungjel in Tibetan, um, that really becomes dominant in uh, certain representations of power in Inner Asia from the 17th century to the early 20th century, especially with the rise of the Dalai Lamas and the Qing, and it's sort of mm, what Johann Elverskog calls the Geluk-Qing formation, the sort of representation of power and history and moral narratives and community that, um, uh, you know, really becomes widespread over the course of the Qing Empire. And here's Zawa Damdin climbing on a throne and sort of uh, amplifying the message. But what's so interesting about the text is that it ends saying that this all happened in 1924, not 1824, not 1724, but 1924. So yeah. this is 
uh, over a decade after the political end of the Qing. This is already a decade after, you know, the quote-unquote man, last Manjushri emperor is laying in hiding <laughs> in the Japanese legation in Beijing, you know. This is already ten, over 10 years after the national formation of Mongolia, um, and it's already three years into Asia's first experiment in socialism, the formation of the Mongolian People's uh, Republic, right? And yeah. so why are there monks standing, climbing up onto thrones, talking, as the text says, to an assembly of monks and gods about when, what Manjushri has to say for them and about the global history of China, Mongolia, Tibet, India, Central Asia, sort of organized through the figure of the enlightened Manjushri emperor and the Qing? I mean, we could say, well, this is just some conservative monk out of, out of um, step with reality but there's an audience, you know? And so this opens the whole problem that the book tries to explore, which is that, uh, you know, the, the nice tidy periodizations of modern state formation, modernity with heavy quotation marks, scare quotes in Asia, of course, isn't a unilinear process. It doesn't just start through contact with Europe. It doesn't, it's not some slow rationalization of public space that is mutual and consensual, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I'm after in the book through the sort of, in a kind of micro-historical way through Zawadamdan's eyes is what is the otherwise of the modern in Asia, in inner Asia? What is the otherwise of the nation, of the national formation, right? Of the national subject, which is being invented. Yeah. A population, you know, the Mongols, the Chinese, history with a capital H, um, what are the affordances and the leftovers, the scraps of other ways of being in time and place that endured this grand experiment in making new societies accompanied by a lot of bloodshed in, in, in you know, Siberia, Mongolia, Tibet, China, and so on. And, and beyond that, what uh, are the effects of those what I call countermodern formations globally and transnationally since the purges, you know, mm-hmm. um, in the way that the transnational Tibetan Mongolian community, as well as sort of converts to these traditions all around the world, um, you know, what are the effects of those formations? You know, we know so much about Buddhist modernism, but what is outside of the nation, out of the modern? What's left outside? Uh, and, um, that's the problem that the book opens with. And in some ways that's the problem that the book ends with. Um, but this is my interest. And so, you know, I try to develop a sort of, I try to do two things which in the book, which is describe what the contents of the social and religious imagination were for at least for Zawa Damdin and the nobility and monastics around him in the, beyond the political endings of the Qing. And I try to show how that was, quite unique and beyond the normal narrative of um, modern formation. Um, And then I also, though, try to exemplify a way of using a close analysis of Buddhist communities, of this sort of a sociology of knowledge and so on in these communities, in a way that I hope could be used to explore other contexts of these counter-modern Buddhists, you know, who, Zawadamdin, for example, never uses the word communism. The wet, uh, he never talks about the revolutionary party. He never identifies a politician. 
he comes up with these vast global histories wherein Europe and science and... Uh, so what does uh, he use when he talks about these factions of people? Well, so this is, his, this is actually his problem, right? Which is the end of the Qing provides essentially a black box, which is how do you reproduce Buddhist communities? Uh, how do you uh, discuss and, and, uh, and represent in, say, historiography and so on, population and shared histories? Uh, and how do you set the profound uh, ruptures represented by the collapse of the Qing into time and place? And he spends 30 years doing that. And he's reading, um, and I guess I'll go through it, you know, chapter by chapter, but he's reading all the new currents of uh, uh, intellectual currents arriving with revolution in Inner Asia voraciously and critically and in close conversation with uh, Russian scholars, uh, Finnish linguists and uh Orientalists, and he's reading French historical fiction. He's reading early Buddhology, um, early kind of science being brought into Inner Asia alongside the Abhidharma, the Kalachakra, the, Kalachakra, the Vinaya, uh, and just, you know, and several centuries of what I call a sort of frontier multilingual Gelug scholasticism that sort of extends from Ando into. Haha, uh, Mongolia, and into parts of North China, the real frontier mediators um, mm. that uh, you know were working through for generations before Zawadamdin, you know, amalgamating you know uh, China histories of Chinese Buddhism with Tibetan versions of um, the Buddhist dispensation, for example, like Gumbojad and so on, and uh, a kind of synthetic scholasticism that Zawadamdin brings into the post-Qing period. Yeah. Uh, and brings them into conversation with everything from the Bakhtin circle to um, what is beginning to form as an academic discipline, which is like Oriental studies, Asian studies, and Buddhist studies. So he's engaging all of this stuff to come up with, essentially to diagnose the causes of the end of the Qing and to sort of sketch out what the implications were for someone like himself, who's an abbot, a leader, um, right at the very center of the first experiment of socialism in Asia. And, um, you know, he, he writes thousands of pages, but in the end, he can't quite make sense of it. And even though he can come up with a, a very a vast vision of history based on his readings, he can't come up with a compelling, cohesive uh, narrative about how to move forward by his own admission. The internet booms for the first time and you have access to all this information and you're trying to make sense of it. But as a monk, a Mongolian right. Buddhist monk, yeah. I'm trying to make sense of it. Yeah, yeah. it's true. You so know, it's just... more about um, mm-hmm. How did you find him? How did you get interested in all his texts and who was he? Sure, yeah. So um, I mentioned earlier that I had the opportunity to travel to Mongolia with some Tibetan lamas were doing teaching tours, they were actually hosted by the current incarnation of Zhao Damdin, Zhao, known as Zhao Rinpoche today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Zhao Damdin's incarnation, 
who's a very prominent figure in Mongolia, a very prominent Buddhist figure. Um, and um, when I mentioned that I had done my MA as sort of ethnography of these Buddhist summer camps or Bible camps, essentially, in Mongolia, um, one of the main things they were reading were translations into Cyrillic or contemporary Mongolian of Zawa, the previous Zawadamdin's histories. So, uh, and also, you know, part of the revival in Mongolia is Zawadamdin's very um, prominent. He's sort of constructed as this nationalist hero, the last great polymath of Mongolia, both as a kind of modernist figure because he was very engaged with new intellectual currents after the collapse of the Qing, um, okay. but also as a kind of emblem of a definitively Mongolian Buddhist Buddhism at its height, at its sort of like intellectual and institutional height. Um, again, my book actually contradicts all those narratives, but that was uh, a prominent part of my first, you know, one or two or three times going to Mongolia. I mean, there's statues of Zawadamdin everywhere. Uh, his image and his memory is central to the nationalist kind of a Buddhist revival happening. So that made me think, well, geez, I should start taking a look at what he actually had to say. And it turns out he had a lot to say. <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of things to say. Goodness. Yeah. So then, and one of the things, uh, I guess, coming to the book is that he wrote a lot about himself. Um, he wrote a lot about his autobiography. He wrote a lot of autobiographical texts. Um, and he also intrudes regularly into er essentially everything else he wrote. Um, I should say that Zawa Damdin, the 9,000 or so folios, I think is about 417 texts like, that I counted in his, uh, in his um, collected works today. Very few of them were actually printed during his lifetime. And most of them come down to us as copied um, photocopied manuscripts that were assembled in the 1970s by the Mongolian refugee community, uh, especially Gurudev Rinpoche and so on. So these were texts that, that, that read still as drafts. There's interlinear notes. There's his voice is intruding. There's a lot of open-ended um, questions in the text. You know, the beginnings might be really well-formed, but they drift off at the end or there is no ending. Um, it's essentially like looking at the notes of a scholar um, more often than it is looking at, you know, completed texts that have been cut into woodblocks or printed and edited and so on. So because of that, his own voice is so much a part of everything he wrote, whether he's writing about, you know, ancient India or this, what we call the Silk Road, if he's writing about Madhyamaka, if he's writing about, um, you know, writing about the history of the Mongols or Chinggis Khan or he's writing about the Qing or whatever he's write, writing about. He's so present in the text. He's regularly it's intruding. Rare, isn't it? Pardon? It, and that's quite rare when it comes to yeah. Buddhism. It's it is absolutely. Voice. Yeah, it is absolutely. And, um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, he's definitely coming at the end of a two or 300 year blossoming of biographical and autobiographical writing in across the Tibet-Mongolian interface, right? Of where biography and autobiography 
had just exploded in, in its scope and its length in terms of its uh, the way folks were reflecting on uh, appropriate um, the, the literariness of autobiography and biography and so on. So I think the idea that he should write about himself a lot was certainly uh, expected, but he, but it's so um, uh, what's unexpected is how um, sort of uh, unguarded his statements about his life are and how uncertain he is about his times and uh, uh, as well. Um, and so I, I have two chapters in the book dedicated to his autobiographical writing, kind of gleaned from many, 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 many different places, um, where I kind of try to patch together his life, his education, and what it was to be a monk walking through the, very, the twilight of the Qing, to be formed at the height of a sort of Tibetan-Mongolian scholastic culture, and then to come into seniority um, just as that all fell away <laughs> and having to take control of monasteries and lineages and um, communities and so on um, as, you know, the state slowly gets itself together legally and, uh, and otherwise to, um, to extinguish monastic life in Mongolia. Mm. And what made you title the chapters the way you did? For example, part one, enchantment. Chapter one, wandering. Chapter two, felt. Chapter three, milk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess what I wanted to do was, essentially though, what I was deciding to do with this book is to to try to emphasize how Zawadamdin's engagement in writing and interpretation of his times are open-ended and are unfinished and they contradict one another mm. as opposed to being closed and tidy, cohesive, um, uh, and definitive. Um, and because of that, I tried in my own writing to not add any more closure, uh, to not impose my own themes too dramatically and so on. And to pick up on, metaphors and um, recurring themes that he uses to write global history and write his own life about his own life um, over the 20 or 30 years or so of revolution um, that he saw and weathered and tried to manage, or at least tried to know. (laughs) Um, And so wandering, for example, he organizes in the, he has a dedicated autobiography that he writes uh, when he's about 69 in 1936. So this is deep into the revolutionary period, just a few months, possibly just a few weeks, really, before his own death, and also before the escalation of state violence, where at least 40,000, 50,000 monks are killed, and all the, you know, almost all of the 800 monasteries are destroyed, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of monks are disrobed, and so on and so forth, right? So the writing's on the wall. This is grim times. And um, uh, from that vantage, Zawadamdin writes about his youth. Uh, he's born in 1867 in the Gobi. And he writes about his uh, entering the monastery, his training, the pilgrimages that he took, um, his mm, uh, eventually taking over uh, as a teacher and an abbot in his own right. And 
he titles each of those sections uh, using the word yangpa, yangpa in Tibetan. So like usually used to kind of talk about mental wandering, like distraction. So in a sense, he's sort of an expected level of humility for a monk writing about his life. Like these are, this is my worthless life spent in distraction. You know, he kind of has this language, but also yangpa for me becomes the dominant theme of his life and work because he wandered so far in his life. He wanders across uh, the territory of the Qing. He he travels to to Amdo, to Eastern Tibet, the kind of borderlands, trains in poetry at the major monasteries around Xining City. He goes to Beijing. He goes to Wutaishan, right? He has uh, all these visions. He has this dramatic, almost mystical experience, series of experiences um, that he writes about using particular uh, Tibetan-Mongolian genres. Um, uh, but but he also wanders intellectually, right? Like he's wandering through the peak of scholastic life um, in the Eastern Tibetan-Mongolian areas in the Geluk tradition. Uh, he trains in all the classical texts and he accomplishes you know, these degrees and becomes this recognized debater and, and so on. But he's also an early member of the Mongolian, what becomes the Mongolian Scientific Academy. He's an early, he's a sought after interlocutor for revolutionary leaders, all these Buryats and Siberians that are the poets of revolution in Asia. The first, you know, one of the, you know, who are translating Marxism and Leninism and Trotskyism and so on into uh, onto the steps into you know nomadic and pastoral communities and uh, inventing you know um, trying to translate inner Asia into historical materialism and to all these other sorts of legal and social programs and um, Zhao Damden's engaging them deeply. He's also like reading anything that's available. In Mongolian or Tibetan, from um, you know, uh, yeah, writing from the, the Bakhtin circle to French historical fiction, um, essentially elementary school book science that becomes scandalous. He has to take on, and so he's Zawadamdin wanders in all these ways. So he he himself uses this language to describe his own. Uh, peregrinations i guess as a as a person um and uh and it seemed like a good way to organize uh, talking about his life and and later on he talks about himself wandering into uncertainty into old age wandering into needing to protect the monasteries and that late autobiographical work in particular um ends in a very kind of tragic grim way where he's essentially escaping to the desert to go into permanent retreat Gosh. And the, the monasteries have essentially been shuttered. Um, and then I'm able through in the book to reconstruct his death and his burial from um, some archives I found in the National uh, Library in Mongolia. Um, and then the, the the general organization of the book between this enchantment, disenchantment, um, it just seemed to me that this is the binary that Zawadamdin begins developing through his decades-long uh, uh, attempt to diagnose his times, um, essentially a slow, steady enchantment 
of the world, but you know, specifically Inner Asia. And then the disenchantment of the world as part of the collapse of the Qing. And I talk about enchantment and disenchantment in a very particular way in the book as um, essentially the arrival of the enlightened, of, of, of Buddhas, of Bodhisattvas, and so on, into the world as these sort of curators of uh, security, abundance, <laughs> the Dharma, um, you know, the sort of uh, incarnation, the ideology of incarnation, which is by the early 19th century, of course, is just just saturates inner Asia, the Tulku tradition and the idea that the enlightened were occupying not just religious positions as say the Dalai Lamas, the Panchen Lamas, the Gypsum Dampas and so on in Mongolia, but also political figures like the Qing emperors, like Chinggis Khan, you know, Chinggis Khan, um, like uh, the uh, emperors of the Tibetan uh, imperial period back in the, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth century and so on. You know, the idea that the enlightened had regularly intruded into the human, onto the human stage, wrapped themselves in monk robes or the robes of an emperor and curated civilization was essentially uh, the dominant way of representing history from a literary perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is essentially Zawadamdin's trouble is that if all of history culminates in this grand golden period of the Qing as 200 years of scholasticism before him had determined, well, what do you do when the Qing goes, <laughs> right? What do you do when this quote-unquote enlightened, the incarnate lamas like the the last Jepson Dampa, the eighth Jepson Dampa that he knew are essentially scoundrels or else have evacuated, um, you know, their positions or else they're being put on trial and shot. So yeah. for him, this is his problem. Like he's he's essentially faced with either extending the historical, uh, this way of representing history, territory, agency, and authority that he had inherited from the Qing, or else it was his task to end it and talk about what is the end of history? <laughs> what is the end of, uh, and so on. And so I'm really especially interested with this idea of uh, following his his focus on tracking the events of the enlightened arriving into the into the the human real into the 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 in upon the inner Asian stage because he's most interested in this not as a language of diplomacy which other scholars have explored not as a way of like representing icons or not as a way of doing ritual, not as a projection of Qing power, as a way of kind of fooling Tibetans and Mongolians, but based in this idea that the enlightened are present and available to the human, Dawa Damdin, and I, I sort of suggest inner Asian Buddhists generally by this period, understood an entire set of like reproductive possibilities, right? Of contact with these generally masculine, enlightened institutions, bodies, uh, and this idea of contact, right, of like gel and so on in Tibetan with these these purifying centers, whether it's a monastery, whether it's monks, whether it's monastic communities, and especially these incarnate lamas like Tukus, Hutuktuk, and so on, right? Um, Zawadamdin essentially decides that these this is no longer possible. 
So his whole way of constructing like the modern <laughs> uh, is that this set of reproductive possibilities, essentially global history itself has, has, has come undone, right? And so how do you reproduce Buddhist life? How do you actually understand community and the direction of history uh, uh, and so on? Yeah, so uh, what does one do when everything you knew and have been taught just falls apart and there's not quite an alternative yet? Exactly. And this is his task. And it's not just his own task. He's, he's asked to write history and he's known for his abilities, um, you know, over the course of uh, the revolutionary period, right? Um, the Bolt Khan, who becomes the leader of the autonomous, this incarnate Lama of the Jepsen, the eighth Jepsen Dampa, who's raised as this leader of the Mongolian uh, autonomous uh, uh, during the Mongolian autonomy period, which is like 1911 to 1919, the sort of theocratic nation state that broke away from the Qing in 1911, um, who and thought was a scoundrel and absolutely detested. Um, you know, he drafts Sawadamnin to write national history. Um, Mikhail Tubiansky, who's a student of Shabatsky, this famous Russian Buddhologist, uh, writes Sawadamnin, encouraging him to continue writing his histories of the Mongols, of Buddhism, and so on, since the writing was on the wall that these texts will become scattered in, in the wind, as he puts it, right? So he's like implored everywhere he looks, left, right, and center, to write history. And of course, when we write history, we're trying to shape the future, right? I mean, so really his, the argument I advance in the book is he turns to writing the past obsessively just as the future becomes so uncertain for someone like him, who's not a revolutionary leader, who's in the, who's in the scholastic colleges and who's facing all of these profound uh, changes long before, you know, the idea of state violence was in the air, you know, just the idea of social mobility that everyday common people could take the reins of political power. Uh, the idea that science and scientific academies uh, kind of associated with the West would be privileged by the state and would become competitors for the scholastic colleges, Right. Um, there's all these other yeah. shifts and ruptures that he and those around him, you know, um, deal with. Um, but we only know it through his eyes because we don't have other texts, really. And when he's wandering through all of these new ideas that he's interacting with, do you get a sense maybe which ones that he's more partial to? Yeah, yeah. So he's he's not a conservative I, I don't use the word conservative in any sense because he's a deeply, deeply, deeply engaged thinker, really a, f a phenomenal mind, um, you know, in the sort of <laughs> dusty monasteries of Mongolia. Um, and he's a, a voracious um, reader and interpreter of emerging scholarship, Western scholarship. He uses that word, Western or Europe, right? Um, uh, scholarship about early, early Buddhism. So, you know, I've, I've found little tangents and asides in some of his works where he talks about going to the uh, an embassy in what's now Ulaanbaatar, you know, the, the capital of Mongolia where he was based, and looking at pictures of Silk Road excavations, like from Turfan, perhaps, or Dunhuang. He doesn't say, but he's talking about these excavations. He's looking at pictures and 
scholarship on Khotan, uh, mm-hmm. which is so central to these really radical new interpretations of the deep history of Inner Asia, of Tibet, Mongolia, China, India, that he comes up with just before the end of uh, the purges. Um, and uh, also, though, his kind of new interpretations of the Mongolian past, but also like the Tibetan past, the Turkish past, and so on, is um, uh, buttressed. You know, he finds evidence in like Western maps. Um, he translates uh, John Gustav Ramstead's work on the stele, like the stone inscription, Turkish inscriptions in Mongolia. He, th- this was published in Mongolian in the 19-teens, and Zawadamdin translates the entire article, entire scholarly article, on the Turkic origins of the Mongols into his work. And so that origin story like dramatically contradicts the Qing narrative, which is that, you know, the, the the Mongols and the Qing and the Tibetans are all in this kind of continuity back to Chinggis Khan and the Tibetan, you know, Yarlung Empire and way back to like prehistorical Indian kings, you know, the sort of like nice cohesive cosmology that was developed in the Qing. Well, Zawadamdin is very open to abandoning that narrative because the evidence isn't there. And he's, um, you know, takes a dramatic left turn seeing the Mongols as part of this like shared Turkic nomadic history. Um, and they know that. So that text translated into, into Tibetan for posterity exists alongside, you know, uh, lives of the, the Indian Mahasiddhas and, um, you know, prophecies from Tukul Drakpa Gyaltsen from the 16th century and all these other, this mosaic of sources to come up with this deep history. So he's very, very open and very interested in emerging, you know, stuff we would call today Buddhist studies or Asian studies, Orientalist scholarship, archaeology, textual scholarship, and so on. What he cannot stand, though, in terms of new knowledge, is empiricism, science. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is something that he takes issue with from writing that was done in the 19-teens. So this is during the autonomous period, where there's these secular newspapers that are translating elementary science into Mongolian, Um, you know, stuff about, you know, that the earth is round, evolution, um, physiology, what weather is, and so on, into the news, this newspaper called The New Mirror, right, Shinito. And um, Zawadamdin is part of a revolt (laughs) against these ideas. And so... uh, and this continues in his work right up until 1931 as the last example of him taking issue with what he calls the superficial intellectuals of the West. <laughs> um, but what's so interesting, though, and what I make a, try to emphasize in my my book is that it's not that the this you know the the cosmology of Western science that, for example, the Earth is round, that it's a heliocentric universe, and so on. He's not worrying that this representation of the world contradicts the Abhidharma, the Kala Chakra, or whatever. As he says himself, the, his canonical sources about, you know, his quote-unquote Buddhist sources about the nature of the world and the nature of all the different people who live in it, they themselves are contradictory, <laughs> right? 
dramatically very contradictory. But what his issue is, is how Western scholars and specifically scientists know the world, which he says is only through direct cognition, mm-hmm. right? They only know the world and they only accept truths, truths about the world through direct observation, sort of sensory observation. They neglect entirely inference, which of course is a privileged scholastic way of proving karma and rebirth, um, unseen truths about the world that are found in scriptural sources, right? Which scholasticism is so intent on proving. So um, the line in the sand for him and his scholastic milieu was science, empiricism, and so on. Uh, And also his other line in the sand was mixing the laity with monastics in monastic colleges. And so late in the book, um, I was able to reconstruct through various letters and things like that, um, how he was a very sought-after voice, sort Mm -hmm. of authority, by all these people we would identify today as Buddhist modernists, Siberian, uh, Buryats in particular, uh, including Agvan Dorjiev, you know, is this famous figure, confidant of the 13th Dalai Lama, this diplomat, and a confidant also of Tsar Nikolai, and someone really trying to make Buddhism in Buryatia especially um, uh, survive this, <laughs> the, the socialist period, the Soviet Union. Um, in any case, all of these guys are, several of them are writing to Zhao Damden uh, as they try to modernize the monastery, mm-hmm. to rationalize it, to introduce science, to introduce Western scholarship about Buddhism into the monastery, into the monastic colleges, and to kind of invent this new character, which they kind of call the the Black the black Lama, right? Like, like the Haralam or whatever, right? Um as a sort of pseudo-monastic, pseudo-lay figure who's studying traditional monastic knowledge, but also being trained in the European and Russian academy, as all of these Buryats, many of those Buryats themselves had been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another line in the sand for Zawa Damden. And it, his, he cannot accept the social mixing of having the laity in uh, sitting alongside the monastics studying scholastic topics and particularly the vinya of course like the laity aren't supposed to study the the vinya um but just generally uh as he says it's like mixing water with milk um which i guess from you know for <laughs> for him or for mongols perhaps uh, this is like something you really don't want to do right um yeah. it's like you're diluting the nourishing um uh life-giving continuity of, of the dharma right and yeah. so you know, these things that have been so focused on is like, you know, the like quote unquote Buddhist modernist movements and reform movements and so on in these revolutionary contexts. I mean, Zhao Damden is just fiercely critical. And, uh, and I, I translate those letters. You can get a sense of it in the book. Um, and so, you know, that really points again to what I'm trying to get out in the book. Well, well, if not that, then what? <laughs> what is going on uh, in the ruins of the Qing Against reform movements, you know? Some disenchantment and reenchantment happening in all sorts of directions where yeah, really interested in all this new information and history and way of looking at the world that's coming in, but at the same time, he's also rejecting aspects of it. 
like the mixing. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And yet he has, and through it all, I should say, he has a scholastic impulse, one really carried over from the Qing, I say, the late kind of, well, let's say the 18th, 19th century Qing, of a sort of polyglot, synthetic, Gaelic scholasticism that you would find across Amdal, figures like Sumpa Kempo, um, you know, all those lamas that were at Gunlung and Kumbum Monastery around Xining, the sort of Sino-Tibetan-Mongolian frontiers, yeah. um, or in in Beijing and all across Mongolia. <clears throat> These monks who were working in Chinese, Manchu, Tibetan, Mongolian, to both project and mediate the Qing imperial formation into local inter-Asian contexts, but also mm-hmm. to represent and push back based on local interests, like against the Qing, right? Um, but through it all, you know, there's like long histories of these mo- these scholars, like engaging with Jesuits, engaging with, this, you know, Copernican, you know, models of the universe, with Christianity, with specifically also with Chinese histories of Chinese Buddhism, right? Um, in other words, the, wor- the world was already... Uh, so multilingual, multi-ethnic in the in the plural for these scola- these scholars along the frontiers of the Qing, who rep- who had very different interests than like Central Tibetans, very different interests than imperial administrators, and Zawadamdin carries that interpretive framework forward to make sense of the Qing. I argue yeah. they they are his primary references, and even though the narratives they told about the world no longer held, and he in some ways radically proposes like new new models of global history and so on he carries forward their interpretive mm, impulse which is that you need you can't ignore you need to make sense of you need to synthesize new or emerging knowledge right so he couldn't just ignore new social currents new uh science, right? You couldn't ignore new Western scholarship. That had to all be synthesized, had to be put into a hierarchy uh, with his canonical sources, his authoritative sources. Um, And he produces really radical new visions of not just Mongolian history, of Chinese history, of Mongolian history, of Islamic history, um, and new synthetic visions of this tradition that includes its ending because he just doesn't think it can continue forward. And that version of events in the ruins of the Qing before the imposition of state violence, I also argue, has had really dramatic consequences for Tibetan and Mongolian refugee communities, and particularly the way he writes about the deep history of Buddhism uh, in Asia. So this is like Mongolian Buddhism, quote-unquote Mongolian Buddhism, before Mm -hmm. Genghis Khan, in this deep kind of Turkic, Mongol, um, deep history that he's able to kind of glean and patch together from Western sources, reading in very new ways, you know, uh, Kanju, Tenjur, and various, you know, all kinds of canonical sources that came down to Chinese sources. Um, He puts together this really interesting vision of essentially like a Silk Road Mongolian history that has the Mongols bringing Buddhism not just to China, which is this old sort of Mongolian idea earlier in the Qing, but also that the Mongols brought Buddhism to Tibet, for example, um, that Mecca had been Mongolian territory. You know, these are things that had kind of circulated before, but he really uh, solidifies them in these really interesting ways. 
And if you read historiography written by Buryats, Mongols, and Tibetans in the refugee community, communities, uh, outside, you know, after the waves of socialist violence, like in India and elsewhere, you'll see how widely cited his works are and how it's just taken mm-hmm. as gospel. Um, that this is the deep history of uh, inter-Asian Buddhism, you know, this grand yeah. synthetic project that he had, even if they don't really name him by name or if he's not well-known outside of Mongolia, the effect has been dramatic. Definitely. I think that brings us very nicely to your conclusion. Um, and mm-hmm. where does that leave us with Dao Damdin today? Well, I think there's a few things. Um, one is that we need to think about for scholars of Buddhism and for people that are interested in uh, cultural histories of Buddhism that can contribute to broader theoretical conversations and critical conversations about the history of the non-West generally, um, Zawa Damdin is emblematic because his work is uh, doesn't reproduce all these myths of modernity that we expect and are that we reproduce so often in our scholarship also that we reproduce in our scholarship of buddhism that contact with europe uh, periodizes asia that it automatically leads to some kind of a series of developments like focusing on secularization rationalization scientification um uh you know the interiorization of buddhas of of, of something called religion uh, and so on and so forth. In other words, a very Western-centric, Eurocentric kind of model of modernity that it sort of spreads and diffuses out from Europe over the course of the late colonial and imperial periods. Um, of course that happened. That happened a lot and in very important dramatic ways and in ways that have been formative of the way that, say, something like Asian religiosity or histories in Asia um, circulate and are reproduced today. But that's not the only thing that was happening. And in fact, it may not have been even the primary thing that was happening. It may just be that that was what was happening in the works of the Suzuki's and the Gendon Chopels and the Sayadaws and so on, who were writing so much and were so legible and popular in the West and have rightly occupied so much scholarship. But what about all the conservative monastics, or not, not conservative, but like those outside of modernist discourses that were made invisible through the invention of nation and nationalism that were sidelined and excluded as folks in Asia were inventing populations, citizenry, law, uh, national history, national language, and so on. And so Zawa Damdin is emblematic, again, of what I call a kind of counter-modern Buddhism, which has very dramatic implications, not just for Buddhist studies, but I think for Buddhist studies to um, enter into broader and important theoretical, critical conversations in the study of uh, Asian history, or kind of contemporary Asian history. Um, there's many other figures like him that need to be thought of together so that we can get at all of these otherwise like t- topographies of the imagination, social, religious, political, economic imagination outside of the t- sort of totalizing discourse of Europe, <laughs> which is, yeah. and of the nation and the national subject, which is, really just occupied a, a lot of print and for good reason but there's mm-hmm. so much else out there um, wow. that can help decolonize not just buddhist studies but even the humanities and social sciences you know there's a lot of this is a, I, for me I, th- I think of like work in islamic studies and so on that indigenous studies feminist histories and so on that have 
really try to denaturalize and think beyond, um, um, you know, obviously Europe as an organizing category for the modern or even the modern itself, you know, what lays beyond all that? Well, figures like Zawadamdin and others, especially if we think about them together, give us new language, you know, um, and new analytical perspectives. So that's, if, if this book is read, um, Mm -hmm. I hope people learn a bit more about what folks like Zawadamdin were working through and thinking uh, in the revolutionary kind of the first experiment with socialism in Asia. But I also hope more than that, that people can think with me and, and, uh, and maybe better than me about how figures like Zawadamdin can help us develop a critique of some of the organizing categories in Buddhist studies and Asian studies, modernity studies, um, the history of science and religion and so on uh, in ways that decenter Europe and uh, the way we think about the non-West. There's definitely a whole untapped gold mine of archival works that's just not been even touched upon. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? Um, I'm currently at a, in Germany on a fellowship, uh, beginning two new book projects. Well, not beginning, but really getting into. Um, one of them, very briefly, is on uh, um, biographies of Fashian, the Chinese monk pilgrim Fashian, um, which is actually uh, mentioned in this book that we've been discussing in a few pages. Dao Damden is the one who translated Fashian's uh, travel tales, his, this famous 5th uh, uh, century, early 5th century uh, Chinese pilgrimage from Chang'an who walked across what we call the Silk Road today into Buddhist India, you know, led the way for later pilgrims like Xuanzang and so on. Um, that text was translated into uh, Tibetan by Zawadamdin for the first time in uh, 19, uh, the 19 teens, 1917, I think. Um, and it has a, you know, just has dramatic, dramatic consequences for his own historiography of, of Asia um, and also for refugee communities. But what's more interesting than that little corner of the story is that there was a 19th century sort of Eurasianist circuit of Fashian's uh, translations of Fashian's pilgrimage tale first into French by the first person to hold a chair in Sinology and Tartary studies in the West, uh, Jean-Pierre Abel-Rémusat in, uh, in Paris, who translates Fashian's pilgrimage into French for the first time, first time into a Western language in the, in 1834, just after he died, it, it's published. And it's the first time anyone in the West is reading about Buddhist India and about the biography of the Buddha tied to place. And it's a treasure trove of European knowledge about India and about Buddhism at that time, um, well beyond just the translation. And it ha- it's tied inexorably to the first, uh, well, to, to the invention of Asia and Buddhism as objects mm-hmm. of academic inquiry. And then that text tra- in the French translations goes to Buryatia. It's translated into Mongolian by these Buryat trained ethnologists, trained by the Russian Tsarists. You know, it goes into Tibetan with Zawadamdin. And um, I want to track the circulation of Fashian's texts and the way that it enters into Inner Asia as a way of looking at these multiple ways that Fashian's um, uh, pilgrimage tale produces uh, 
Asia and Buddhism as objects of inquiry differently, whether it's in the Russian Academy, whether it's in France, whether it's in monastic colleges, whether it's among refugee communities in the 1960s and 70s, and also produce like an annotated translation of this version of Fashion's tale, which is supplemented by the Kala Chakra Tantra and Abhidharma and all sorts of other stuff. Um, so that's one project. And then very briefly, the second project is on uh, what I'm calling public culture in Inner Asia over the course of the Qing. And in some ways extending um, uh, what I think is on display with Zawa Damna's life back into the 18th century uh, and leading up until the mid uh, 20th century and trying to think about intellectual exchanges, inter-Asian circuits of knowledge and so on beyond these really problematic categories we need to think beyond, like the West and the non-West, mm-hmm. modernity and tradition, you know, religion, so on and so forth. And I want to think about the ways that um, a kind of public culture, a public intellectual culture existed where representations about everything from uh, astronomy, geography, philosophy, and so on was sort of circuiting, beginning with Sumpa Kempo in the, in the, uh, uh, 18th century and sort of ending with a generation of scholars who were uh, leaving Tibet in the 1950s in the wake of the Chinese invasion and and writing in the in um, in the 1960s. So it's kind of a <laughs> that project's a bit further off, um, but that's what I'm working on right now uh, in terms of like developing the theory and the the questions. Yeah, uh, sounds so exciting. Um, we'll see. With we'll have to have you back on the show. I would love to. Well, that's taken up plenty of your time for today. Thank you so much for being on the show. That was just amazing to hear you talk about your work beyond just reading it. And well, thank you. I can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much for your, um, your interest and for the questions. Mm-hmm.